Hello, my name is Maiwa and welcome to Maiwa in Conversation, a podcast that aims to explore the unique perspectives of Africans. This season, I have conversations with Nigerians that are making an impact by disrupting societal and cultural norms, fighting against injustices, creating new paths and platforms, and who are showing that there are in fact limitless possibilities on the continent. On this episode, I'm talking to Wale Lawal, founder and editor-in-chief of The Republic, a magazine and platform of socio-economic and political commentary, criticism and cultural discourse that explores the world as Nigerian. The Republic is built on the belief that writing can connect, empower and humanize communities. Their mission is simple, to create knowledge. It is no exaggeration to say that The Republic is the only one of its kind, critically written and researched, beautifully presented and unapologetically African in its perspective. Thank you for joining me today, Wale. Thank you so much. This is, you know, this is incredible. So really excited to do this. I want us to talk about the politics of knowledge production and the process of studying and writing about Nigeria, as well as the transformative power of knowledge and writing. And this is something that the Republic, your publication, has said that is their mission to create knowledge. Why do you think creating knowledge as a Nigerian and about Nigeria is such an important mandate? So it's a couple of things. I think, you know, when I was thinking about creating knowledge, and I feel like we all have this assumption of what it means to create knowledge. Everyone thinks of it as this like really grand mission or this grand thing that we're trying to do, which I mean, it's, it is a challenge and it is ambitious, but I don't think it's as impossible as a lot of people tend to think that it is. So mm. because, of, and, and that's just, you know, that's just based on how we define what it means to create knowledge. So for us, you know, you create knowledge when you either say something new that no one has heard about, you know, ever. Um, that is like you create like original, you know, original, original stuff, or you give people a different way of approaching something. You amplify something that already exists um, and, mm. re- and you introduce people to it. So it's a sense, there are, two, so there, there, are ba- there are basically two ways that we look at creating knowledge. It's either like where the knowledge never existed in the first place and you're bringing it up for the first time, or you're kind of bridging um, people and some sort of knowledge that they might not have access to. You're improving their access to it and in that way, creating knowledge for them. And so why I thought it was important is that, you know, I feel like for me, the Republic started when, you know, I was a grad student and I was trying to read up, I was trying to do more essays on Nigeria, Africa. And my largest issue then was really finding content that could really summarize or keep me in tune. So not even just something that I would read just one off, but just give me context as to what people were thinking and what was going on on the continent and in Nigeria. And what I found was I either had the, I had the option of two, you know, two options mainly. The first were, you know, really academic books that you would have to spend, you know, months to go through. These were like tomes of, 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 of knowledge. And it was kind of like, and they were also boring, let's be honest. And I, 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 <laughs> I feel like you and I, we've had our own fair share of like experience in reading academic books. And these are like really, I mean, I just want to know, you know, you, you go in there, you're like, I just want to know this one thing. And then you have to read an entire book to find out um, something that may not even be in the book. And then the other option were like tabloid blogs or just even, lifestyle blogs. And so 
I needed something in between. I needed something that could give me the engagement, that could give me the kind of like, you know, interest and really like innovative storytelling that tabloid blogs had. I mean, Nigerian tabloid blogs at that time had or lifestyle blogs had at that time, but also had the rigor of academic texts that could actually stand its own weights, that could be cited. And that's where like my interest in the Republic started. That's where my interest in this knowledge creation space started. And what I, you know, what I found was this was something that a lot of students faced as well, a lot of African students, a lot of Nigerian students faced. And then I started to think, you know, and you, you know, you start to think about this thing and you realize that, okay, well, I mean, we have a lot of content online. We have a lot of incredible, interesting um, digital media publications online, but we don't have any that really try to engage this continent or engage our realities from a very serious perspective, especially we don't mm. have anyone that's like youth focused. You know, back then we were, and we were having this, at the time, it was like 2014, 2015. So there was a lot of like campaigning or political campaigning going on. And I remember there was a conference that they had for young people and all they did was a concert. And I ended up thinking, these people clearly think that all young people are interested in is this particular thing, just having fun. Music and dancing. Yeah, which is a valid thing. Fair enough. Yes. You know, the kind of country we live in, people do deserve, you know, to take a break, to have fun. But I also realized that every single time there was something youth policy focused, it tended to be like unserious. It tended to be something infantile. And I kind of just thought in this space, knowledge could be political because for me, if I was able to create something that could provide people with the kind of knowledge they needed to make the change that they wanted to make, you're doing something. So it's not just about, you know, and that's why you go on our website and you see this whole thing about don't just read something, do something. It's the fact that we have a lot of young people who really want to do something, who want to be taken seriously, but they don't have necessarily the knowledge that they need to make meaningful impact. You know, you want to advocate for women's rights, but do you really know the full extent of women's issues in Nigeria because women's issues are national issues, right? So for us, it's kind of like, how do you then equip somebody who wants to make that kind of change with the knowledge that they need? And so that's where we started thinking about mm. knowledge in a political sense, in the sense that, look, if you could give people what, you know, if you could give people access to information about X, Y, Z, they could make better impact about that particular issue. And so that's why it was, for us, it was very important to really think about how we create knowledge and how we really just identify, okay, what is missing? in conversations what is missing what is what, what don't people know what is it that people want to know and we're always constantly asking our readers constantly asking people like what is it that you want to know what are these questions that you have so that we can then generate the content that you can then use to have more meaningful engagements with you know with with the world and for us it's the whole thing about like i mean if i wanted to read three thousand words i'm always saying this thing if i wanted to read three thousand words on donald trump's foreign policy there are many publications I can do that at. There are many publications mm -hmm. I, can read, I can read all of that on. But what if I wanted to read the same 3,000 words on Buhari's foreign policy? Where am I going to read that? And that for me is a serious question. Mm -hmm. That for me already shows you the imbalance of you know, coverage about our realities. So it's not that people haven't been, haven't been covering the African continent. Yes, they have. But have they been doing it rigorously? Have they been doing it well enough? Have they been doing it to the extent that somebody can actually depend on those resources as knowledge, as a way of approaching the continent, you know, in a way that gives them the ability to make meaningful impacts, to actually meaningfully engage with their world. I don't think so. And that's really the gap that the Republic tries to fill. And I think one of the most powerful things about, you know, your, your mission to create knowledge, create information, and also just share critical analysis of what's going on in Nigeria, but also 
on the continent in general is that I think it stretches beyond Nigeria. It's not just about giving you an interpretation of what's going on. I think it also has deeply political outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. And I think while you know this is happening and you do see young people critically engaging with the world around them, I also think we see a lot of political apathy and disillusion mm-hmm. in young people. Mm-hmm. Do you think knowledge production, knowledge creation, a critical engagement with the world around you can replace political apathy with activism and inspire calls for change? This, yeah, it's a very, I mean, this is a very good question, actually. And, and I just published an essay um, on Brittle Paper, which is called Speaking to Ourselves but Paying Attention to the World. And in that essay, I really tried to explain um, this practice of what I call disengagement. And I think that that's something that, you know, it's very similar. It's probably even the same thing as what you're, as what you're saying, which is you find a lot of people disengaging um, from the world nowadays. Um, we live in a very political world. That is very clear. Um, I think for a lot of people, people think that a lot of the politics comes from increased coverage of issues, which definitely is true. But a lot of the politics also ha- um or a lot of the political nature of our world today also comes from the fact that we are listening or we are partic- or, or, or we are ha- or we are we're learning and engaging or having to engage with groups that previously we could have easily avoided. You have you know, heteronormative societies having to engage with people who don't necessarily, in quotes, conform to those societies. You have men having to engage with women and not just even like engage with them on like, you know, really sexist terms, but really on terms that women are galvanized, are galvanized to, you know, to dictate. And there's a pushback across all like I feel like across all like social spectrums there's a pushback in the sense that people who you know who you can kind of define as a status quo don't necessarily want to give that up you see that with you know on, on a racial mm-hmm. aspect you see that on, on, on a gender aspect you see that on a sexuality aspect as well and I think that a lot of that a lot of the political nature of our world stems from the fact that it's very difficult to silence groups these days you can't easily I mean and technology has a huge role to play in that. But do I think, you know, do I think it's knowledge that does this? I actually don't necessarily think so. I think it's, you know, uh, do I think it's knowledge that actually galvanizes people to, you know, to, 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 to make those to make those impacts, to become activists? I don't think so. I actually think it's people. And I think that nowadays we really like, you know, the demand um, on people is a lot higher. And, and there's a demand, I think, on a special category of people as well. You know, in the essay, I describe these people as editors because, you know, I like to focus on where my own work um, lies. And that's really in working with people to get their ideas into, you know, into the best way possible. And for me, what I'm seeing is that there's a huge demand, or not a huge demand, but there's a huge like responsibility that editors have nowadays, particularly towards engaging and ensuring that people are engaging. For example, we, we might receive an essay today and in the essay, somebody will tell us, oh, they want to write this essay on, on feminism or on toxic masculinity, but they won't engage with the issue. Mm. What I mean by engaging with the issue is that they assume that because we're a progressive platform, there are some things that we know, so they don't need to mention them. There's some things that we know in the sense that they don't need to mention why, for example, a society might be toxic or why a society might actually, you know, um, might actually desire to have really 
masculine or really toxic masculine or really patriarchal structures, they don't engage with what those things mean. People assume that we've gotten to a point where, yes, we all understand what patriarchy means or we all understand what racism means and it doesn't need further unpacking. And that's not true. For me, it's kind of like, you know, it's when I look at, you know, when I look at an essay and when I look at where an essay stands to make the most impact and where, you know, writers stand to make the most impact, perhaps not as, maybe not as activists, but as people who can possibly even shape the ideas of activists. It's really engaging seriously with those issues that you're covering, even if it's an issue that you disagree with. Even if it's an issue that you disagree with, you need to show that you understand what you're disagreeing with. And you need to show that, you know, you need to show that you 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 appreciate not necessarily. I mean, and I, and I don't mean appreciate in the sense that you that that you that you praise, but I mean appreciate in the sense that you understand why these things exist. You understand why these structures exist because it's by showing us that understanding that you get to show us why this better vision of the world that you have is possible. So that you show us that this is where we are at the moment. You capture that effectively, and then you show us, you know, how to get better. Even and, and for me, it doesn't just even apply to things that you that that we disagree with. It's even stronger, or it's even more necessary for things that we agree with, because again, mm. we take a lot of the stuff that we agree with for granted. For example, you ask people, "Why do you have this certain belief?" and they can't tell you. Oh, maybe because oh, yeah, they just have it. You know, we just have it, and I think that it also applies even if you have progressive ideals. We should always be asking ourselves, "Why do I believe in? Why do I believe?" people should have X, Y, Z rights versus not having those rights? What does it mean if I don't believe that they have those rights? And those questions are good because it leaves us open to, you know, new information, new ideas. And what I mean by new ideas, for example, is that there was a time, for example, that if I, if I use like the feminist movement, there was a, you know, when you look at like second wave feminism, there was a time when people did not see race within the feminist structure at all it was kind of just mm-hmm. like yeah, suffragettes were all kind of you know even as much as black women were contributing to the feminist movement so at the end of the day what you had was white women being the face of this movement right and mm-hmm. and what was very interesting about that is and, and, and the example and why i use it as an, as an example is that it shows you that even movements can evolve and then you have kimberly crenshaw writing about inter- intersectionality and it's this brilliant idea that you know we're all affected by the same. I mean, we, we all face the same sex. You know, um, we all face the same sexist uh, sexist issue, but we don't face it equally because of race, because of class, because of sexuality. And we need to start looking at these intersections and looking at how these things connect. If this was somebody that actually accepted that this is feminism and I agree with it, and I'm just going to go full, you know, full, you know, full throttle on it without necessarily thinking about why do I really believe in this idea and how does it really apply to the way, to the life that I live, we would never. I mean, I don't think the world would have had. I don't think we would have seen at least from her intersectionality. And I think that that just shows you the power of really questioning what you believe in. And I feel like a lot of people always think that when you mm-hmm. question something, it's, um, it's automatically, dis- you know, you're automatically destroying that thing. But it's never, it's, that's not the case. Sometimes you question things in order to progress those ideas, in order to actually see how you can reimagine those ideas towards something, towards something brilliant. I mean, Zadie Smith writes on the idea that, you know, progress is never it's never permanent. It's always threatened and always needs reimagining if it is to continue. And I feel like that is exactly what it means to question progress. When you question progress, when you question progressive ideas, when you even question, let's even put that more broadly, when you question knowledge, you are producing more knowledge. And so it's self-reinforcing. And so for us, it's this idea that 
you may not necessarily become an activist. I don't think we're trying to say everybody needs to become an activist because, of course, there's a serious level of work that activism requires, and not everybody mm-hmm. is equipped, or not everybody and a serious price to pay. Exactly, and not everybody, you know, is expected to you know to 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 do that. But I think everybody has a role that they play, and one of the things that the Republic has been very good at is working with people from all walks of life. So yes, you're an activist, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a policymaker, you're a business leader, but you can all come together on shared important ideas or on shared important issues. And what we then do is provide you this content that allows you to make those necessary changes in your workplace. You will be the one that's championing. We need to have healthier life. Like offices. We need to have, you know, more representative boardrooms because X, Y, Z. If you're an artist, it's producing work that, you know, that, um, that consciously engages with the society that you're in. It's not necessarily producing champagne works that everybody will, you know, celebrate and hang up in their houses. It's actually producing meaningful, serious work. And I think that that's where we then come in. It's really just upping that level of knowledge a bit and giving you that ability and that confidence to change some narrative within your own life, within your own world. So you take what we provide or what we produce and then let it inform whatever actions that you take. So I think it may not, it may not necessarily tell, turn everybody into activists in, you know, in that sense, but it gives them the opportunity and the ability to make meaningful impacts in whatever sphere that they're, that they're active in. You mentioning understanding and the importance of critically understanding not just your beliefs, but the beliefs of people who are, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum made me think about this whole issue around echo chambers on social media and how a lot of people say many of us have warped views of the world around us because the way social media works is that we we only see the things that reflect us as a publication how do you deal with this? Do you only publish work that speaks to the political beliefs that as a publication you have um, decided to stand for? Mm -hmm. Or is this something where you believe that this should be an open playing field for anybody who's willing to give a critical analysis of their belief system? Brilliant question. I think for us, it became very important to establish some sort of ideology and some sort of core value in the work that we do. And the reason why that was important is because, I mean, in business, and I mean, I live a very separate, I live a very different life um, outside of the Republic because I also do a lot of work related to business and understanding business, understanding corporate culture, understanding, you know, work in that sense. Um, and you find that a lot of businesses in Nigeria, yes, we've all caught on to the idea of core values, um, businesses, you know, in particular, but I want to also speak to this in terms of people. We are people who often demand political ideologies from our governments, from our, you know, from our leaders, but we don't necessarily make those demands of ourselves. And so it always makes me wonder where do we think leaders come from? Where do we think we manufacture the people that end up, end up leading us? Of course, it's, you know, it's from our group of people. You know, you, when, when you read, um, when you read Warden and, 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 and other, and other essays, Thoreau, there's an essay that um, Thoreau has in, in the book on civil, um, on civil disobedience. And that's one of my favorite essays because it really, and it's one of my, it's one of my favorite essays, all, you know, of all time, because it really shows you 
how much work you can, you know, how much is expected of you when you hold certain views. It starts to kind of raise questions about when I'm a conscious citizen, when I'm a citizen that holds certain beliefs that my government or my country doesn't necessarily hold, what is my duty to that country? And you start to understand that patriotism is not, a lot of people think that patriotism is loyalty to a government when it's not, it's actually loyalty or it's actually like, you know, loyalty to a country. And sometimes governments act not in the best interest of their country. And so as a patriot, you may not necessarily always find yourself, you know, uh, um, what's it called? aligned with the government. And the reason I say this is because we are people that ask people of ide- our governments from of ideologies, but we don't ask those same questions of ourselves. We want to know that, okay, APC or PDP stands for something. But I'm often, these days, I often ask people, what do you stand for? Because it's when we mm. ask ourselves as people those questions that we then give us give ourselves the opportunity to manufacture people that can follow those ideas. You want, govern- you want, governor- you want governors or local government chairmen or chairwomen that have positions on things like sexual reproductive rights or abortions, but what are your own positions on those on those issues? And then speaking more broadly to us as a publication, so we found that it was very important to have established our own ideology and also promote that ideology because it's not something that's often done here. And for us, that ideology is, you know, to be independent and progressive. And it actually works the other way around in the sense that we are progressive and independent. Progressive in the sense that, you know, our job and what I consider to be our own duty is to make, is to advance, is to kind of push conversations forward, to meet conversations where they are. And what does that actually mean? It means if I look at the subject, if I look at a particular subject, if I look at the subject of race, who has not been covered? Whose voices have not been covered enough on this topic? Because that is how you move the conversation forward, because you need to engage them. Everyone has been talking. And I feel like when we were talking, when, when I was trying, when I was still like conceptualizing the Republic, it was this idea that, look, the world is always having all these conversations about sexuality, about gender, about climate change. Where is Nigeria in all these conversations? Why does it feel like we're not involved in these conversations? When I know that some of the people who are informing the thinking behind these issues are Nigerian. You have, you know, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, you have Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adichie, people who are shaping ideas on a global scale. So how is it that Nigerians are not still represented? You know, how is it that it just doesn't feel like, at least on the ground, because, I mean, that's the other important thing that we needed to have, that Republic would be, would have a base on the ground, because we need to be present and place, you know, the the whole idea of being rooted to a place matters. Because you find that even though we're having all these ideas on a global scale and having all these important discussions on a global scale, are we having them locally? Not necessarily, no. Mm. We're not having them, you know, we're not having them. And so for us, it was like, we need to establish our own, you know, ideals and promote those ideals. We need to be progressive. We need to move conversations forward. An example that where we did this was, you know, in covering Muslim feminism. We, I mean, the Republic has published a lot about feminism. And I think like a lot of other publications that you find, there's a lot about feminism. People, you know, women have a lot to say about the world and that is important to capture and that is important to promote. But you also find that even within that frame, there are some underrepresented groups. You have like Muslim women, for example. And one of the essays that we got at that time was from a woman who, from an author who was trying to reconcile her faith with feminism. And so she's a Muslim, but of course, she does, as a Muslim, she can't necessarily agree with everything that feminism, um, you know, she, she believes that she can't agree with everything that feminism says. And as a feminist, 
you know, she can also agree with everything that Islam says. So where, you know, what, what should she do? And so she wrote this brilliant essay. I thought, I thought it was a brilliant essay. I didn't necessarily, I mean, whether I, whether or not I, I agreed with, I mean, whether or not, whether or not I, I agree with the essay is out of, totally out of the question. And I think that for every Republic editor, we don't necessarily, it's not our, you know, it's not our job to impose ideas on people. It's our job to engage people, whether or not they have the same ideas as we do. And so that's why we're progressive. Yes, we move the conversation forward, but we're independent in the sense that we do so without any kind of personal biases, without personal or corporate biases. We just want to move conversations forward in an independent manner. So for us, what is important is that you come to us with a rigorously written idea or a rigorously researched idea and we then help you to obviously add more rigor to it flesh it out and get you to a point where you really understand what it is that you're writing about where you really understand what it is that you agree with and and you disagree with so for us for example with this particular essay on muslim feminism it was ensuring that this author because her entire argument was why basically why she she felt like she needed to leave feminism for her religion was for her to show that she really understood um the decision that she was about to make and that she really understood, even if she didn't understand, even if it wasn't a, even if she didn't understand the decision, but that she could communicate the question that she had about feminism in a way that actually, that, that recognizes what feminism actually is. So what I didn't want was somebody saying, Oh, I don't know if I can be feminist. If feminism means we have to conquer men. No, of course not, because that's not what feminism actually means. So for us, it was like you need to show a deep engagement with this subject and then based on that deep engagement, reframe your question so that people, when they read this, can actually also see and understand what feminism is. And for us, why that was important, why it was important to publish, you know, such a sensitive and, you know, potentially even controversial piece was that we saw it mm. potential because we saw that this is a piece that if you publish this, more Muslim women will write and more Muslim women will write about this subject and will write about, and you could potentially out of there even get a Muslim woman that will write about her own ability to reconcile feminism with Islam. So for us, that was mm. a very important piece of, that was a very important experience. And that was a very piece of, important piece of work because we did that. And when we did it, before we did it, and in, 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 my, in, in my recent essay, I, I explained just how, you know, how the Republic works in the sense that you send us an essay, we spend anywhere between three weeks and six months working with you on editing the piece. Because, you know, like I said, even though we do, we do publish experts, we do publish a lot of people who we feel like you have an interesting voice. Maybe you don't have, maybe the writing doesn't support that voice. So we need to work with you to develop that writing. So it's a lot of extensive and really rigorous editing that we do. And so we, we spent about five months on this piece and we published it. And when we published it on the final stage of our publishing round, we have three rounds of, of, of editing. And the final stage is, you know, it's, it's a final edit where we basically think about, okay, what is this piece going to do in the world? What is the piece in terms of social media? What kind of conversations will happen? And I spoke to the author then and I was like, look, when we publish this piece, it's going to be controversial. Be ready for that. Like, just expect that. Mm. But at the same time, you will get a lot of men who will agree with this piece without knowing what feminism is at all. They will tell you that they agree with it because it's it's advocating for Islam. It's, you know, it's against feminism. So they will automatically agree with it. And I told her that, look, you need to be able to distinguish between people who agree with this piece because they understand the, the dilemma that you have and, and people who agree with this piece because they just want to see a takedown of feminism. 
which to mm. me is not what the piece is. The piece is asking a question. You don't know what it is. You don't know what to, you know what to do. And so you're asking a question, but you're asking it in a way that you're articulating that question in a way that many other women would like to see. Many other Muslim women who face the same issues, who are Muslim but also feminists and don't know how to reconcile the two, would like to see this question asked so that they can start to have conversations about it. And so we published the essay and lo and behold, so many men, Oh my God, read this piece. Oh my God, read this. Oh my God. Read it, read it, read it. Because, and I I remember I got a comment that I even forwarded to her. It was someone who I think is even like a special advisor. I mean, for me, I was like, okay, you're a special advisor to a president and you're saying this was like, I don't know much about feminism. In fact, I've never read anything about feminism, but I agree with this piece. And so I messaged her and I was like, do you see what I mean? Like, how is this person going to agree with this piece when they don't even know what feminism is? Like, you've never read anything about feminism, but you think you can agree with this piece. And so I told her that, look, this is why you need to also question the things that, this is why we always say question who agrees, agrees, agrees with you, question who, what you agree with. Because you will find that a lot of the times people just agree with things out of no real, I don't know, like no real research, no founded reason. But the interesting thing as well is that we then started getting a lot of comments and a lot of feedback from Muslim women who were like, oh my God, this is an issue that I faced I didn't know how to ask this question. I'm glad this piece exists. You also got comments like, even though I don't agree with this piece, oh my God, this is an interesting conversation. It's an important conversation because I don't know where to start. I've been trying to have this conversation with people, but they just don't get it. Other women who may not be Muslim do not get this issue because you want to follow your religion, but you also have this, you know, you also have this ideological stance, you know, that you want to follow and that you, you, you know, you absolutely believe in. But feminism and Islam don't always see eye to eye. So how do you reconcile? Um, how do you reconcile the two? And so for us, it was a, it was such an important conversation to have. And then eventually, we also had. I mean, we had a lot of men also writing response pieces. You know, why this piece is correct? Why this piece? Why you know why I believe in this piece? We didn't agree. We didn't accept any of them actually. And people have asked us why we did that. And for us, we did that because we felt that look. We don't even have many Muslim women talking about this issue that affects them enough. We haven't built the archive enough. We it's it, it's a it's a it's a growing conversation, and we need to nurture this conversation. It's like a, it's like a child. You can't just expose a child to the world immediately. You need to protect it. So I was like, no, we're not going to. I mean, we can't have men contributing to this conversation at this point. So we published another woman who um, had a. A, a completely different view who felt that actually feminism and Islam work hand in hand. Actually, there's a synergy here. And it's been a back and forth between those two pieces. And for us, that is important to see because on the one hand, you have a piece that kind of expresses, you know, why why somebody felt, you know, I can't I can't live up to, to both the expectations of both. And you have a piece that's saying actually you can because these two um, I, ways of living have more in common than you often think. And so for us, you know, just establishing that ideology was important because if we hadn't established our ideology as progressive and independent, we would not be able to have conversations like this because we, would, we wouldn't we would to position ourselves on those types of conversations. I mean, throughout the entire process, something that everybody always wanted to know, Wally, what's your position on this? Wally, what do you think about this? And it's, it's funny because a lot of people do tend to ask me questions like that. What do you think about this position? What do you think about this? What is What, what are your own personal views? And I feel like these days, I just tell people that, I mean, my answer to a lot of people is, one, my personal views and the Republic's views are very different. Like, the Republic is mm. an organization, so it's bound to have its own views. My own views on things are very different. And when it's about my work, when it's about the work I do at the Republic, my personal views don't really matter in that sense. In the, and what I mean by in that sense is that 
Republican and I are, are aligned in the sense that we do have progressive ideals, in the sense that, yes, I would class myself as a progressive. But even if I disagree with something, the Republic does, that doesn't mean the Republic won't publish it because we're very separate and mm. I don't have that much control over, you know, over what we publish. And, and it's important that I don't. And that's why that philosophy and that grounding philosophy helps because it really allows us to kind of understand what it is that we can cover. Because something I always tell my team is that we can't cover everything. The Republic cannot do everything. But whatever we mm. cover, we should do it to our best. So we can't be balanced. I, I, I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people, people, oh, we need to be balanced. It needs to be balanced. And I always just feel like balance is overrated. You know, everybody always mm-hmm. cover all sides. But, well, they're not always different sides. I mean, not every issue has multiple sides. Not every issue has two mm-hmm. sides. Some have more. Some have only one side. Um, and what I think is more necessary, what I think is more important, what I think is more value adding is rigor. We want more rigor. Mm-hmm. Even if so, if you're not able to cover all sides, the sides that you do cover, cover them rigorously. And that's it. And I feel like for us, we are only able to have that. We're only able to pursue rigor because we have that philosophical um, ideology. To add to that, I also feel like in the Nigerian context, at least, we have more conservative views just sitting down now, I can think about all the different arguments people make about abortion and, and women's sexual health and all of that. But I can't think about Nigerians who are making more progressive, critical stances on these issues in the same way I can think about kind of what I've just heard reading on social media from politicians about these issues. So you're totally right. We need a beacon of progressive views that young people, all people, all Nigerians can go to for this rigorous coverage and also something that's engaging with progressive issues, not just because we believe in this because it's progressive, it's cool, it's left wing, but we believe in this because we've critically engaged with this and this aligns with with the way we see the world. And that leads me to a follow-up question And that's why do you think we don't see a lot of critical journalism Mm -hmm. in Nigeria and and mainstream critical writing? I think it's because it's hard. (laughs) I don't like to anyone. (laughs) It's hard. You know, it's very hard. It's something that you can't do unless you're actively doing the homework. It is hard. Um, I've, I mean, and it's hard on 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 at every level. You know, it's not just about Mm. building the person that's going to write on a particular issue or writing on a particular issue. It's also knowing how to edit it. It's also knowing how to publish it. It is very hard. And I feel like it's not as easy as just, I mean, I've been published by other, and I feel like a lot of my, you know, when I, when when I was trying to figure out, okay, what should be, what should the Republic be known for? And I thought editorial, really strong editorial was one of the, one of the things I, the reason why was because, I mean, I'm someone who writes. I mean, I've written for a number of publications. And I know that many of, many publications, and you'd be surprised, you know, because everybody thinks, you'd be surprised that some of the, even the biggest publications do not pay that much attention to editorial. They don't pay that much attention to editing um, in the sense that everybody just treats it as a routine activity. Okay, let's take out these words. Um, let's do a spell check. Let's do this. Oh, what are you trying to say here? But they don't think about editing in the larger picture, in the larger sense of what editing mm. is. Because you're not just editing something that's going to be read today. You're editing something that will serve as reference to somebody a hundred years from now. And what do you want this piece to say? What do you want this piece to show them? What do you want this piece to tell them about our world today? 
And so you're always thinking about that. You're also thinking about people who will be reading this from a different geographical context, from a different social context. What do you want this piece to show them about the world that this author is trying to capture? And also, what do you want the author to learn from this process? I think a lot of people tend to think of editing as something that's very mechanical, something that's very, you know, there's a process, there's there's, there's standard words, there's a style guide. But editing is also about people. It's also about building trust between an author and somebody who is looking at their work and really working with them to ensure that the work expresses their ideas in the best ways possible. And so there's a lot of like people management. There's a lot of like, you know, it's like you're going on a journey with someone. And one of the things I've always been able to appreciate with the Republic is that we have authors who go on this journey with us and come out from this journey with a completely different outlook on life generally. Mm. Not just, and I mean, when I mean outlook on life, it's not that, you know, at the end of the process, you suddenly decide, oh, I don't believe in this anymore. No, it's that you believe in it still. Yeah, sure. But you understand why you believe in it. You understand the stakes. You understand, you also understand yourself even better. You understand how to question yourself. You understand the fact that somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they hate, they hate you or they think that you're stupid. But you also understand mm. how, somebody can, how somebody should disagree with you. And what I mean by that is, a lot of us just think of disagreement in this kind of like blanket sense, but there are ways to disagree. There are appropriate ways to disagree. And I feel like part of that process is, you know, is showing people how to disagree. And one of the things that people learn when they work with us is precisely that, how to agree with someone and how to disagree with somebody. Because we will agree with you if, I mean, if, yes, okay, sure, this, you know, the sun, the sun comes up every day. Yes, sure, we agree. But how do you know this? What is your backing source? Those types of things. So we agree with you, but you need to show us more evidence and things like that. So we even question you. We will even question you, even if we agree with what, you know, what it is that you are saying. But, the, but this, you know, the thing remains, all of this is difficult. All of this is hard. And you can't really do this. For a lot, you know, for, for, for someone, a lot of people now talk, a lot of people tell me that, oh, you know, because we live in an era where everything must scale. And, you know, you start thinking about how the public will grow and will you always have enough time to give authors ETC? And for me, it's like, yeah, we've actually worked with, you know, for me at the moment, at the moment we've worked with over 200 authors though. So this is not something that we can't replicate. We do this on a daily basis. Mm. We work with authors. We go with them on this journey on a daily basis. So you can replicate this, but it is hard. It's hard in the sense that people do need training on how to look at it, mm-hmm. on how to read before they can even mm-hmm. think about, okay, how to publish ideas like this. Living in a country where we've not really been taught how to read. And what I mean is we can all mm-hmm. go as in like we can read on a page. Yeah, we're literate. Read critically. We don't know what mm. the piece is asking. We don't know, okay, what is the conversation that this piece is part of? Because that is also part of reading, right? It's also about tracing what mm. the conversation is part of. Um, you know, it's that it's that it's that quote from um, from 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 James from James Baldwin where he's like, "You think your pain, you know, is unprecedented in the world, but then you read." It's mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 being able to trace your own, like your understanding of a piece to where it's coming from, to the larger context. Because he does, I mean, the follow-up to that quote is that he does mention that it was, that it was reading that showed him that he, you know, he was connected to everyone who had ever lived and everyone who currently lives. So being able to read critically is being able to find those connections. And I don't think we do that enough. Hmm. And going back to this idea of creating knowledge, in your experience, what are the biggest barriers to creating knowledge about Nigeria in Nigeria? So in terms of, 
in terms of the barriers, I'd say it's a couple of, it's a number of things, you know, and, and it ranges from, you know, what's it called? Um, it ranges from access to funding to just even the fact that a lot of the resources that you need were not that you will need if you're going to do, if you're going to produce knowledge that is Nigeria oriented or Africa oriented will not have been produced by Africans. And so you need, there's a serious mm-hmm. question that you need to, that you need to then ask yourself about how you treat content like that. Do you go in there with an open view to just understand, um, to just understand all that content, even especially content from or, or, or knowledge from many years ago that you know because of you know colonization, racism, would be biased? How do you treat those types of you know those types of, of of knowledge products? And for me, it's a thing where like already, like I always say, like Africa, when you when you engage very critically with this continent, you find that this is a continent that isn't even mainstream within the continent. Like Africa is not mainstream Mm. in Africa. And so you find that a lot of the topics that we need to cover are really difficult and are still quite difficult to cover because we don't have access to those topics because a lot of the knowledge that we need or a lot of the resources available were not produced by Africans. And so it raises, you you need to be skeptical Mm -hmm. about those types of things to some extent, right? But at the same time, we're also at a point where, I mean, for us, it's also a thing of, but which part of which parts of those contents can you recreate? Which parts of those contents can you reimagine? I feel like we also need to we we need to get to a point when it comes to engaging with knowledge, where we don't need to ask for permission. You don't need permission, especially you know you need to know what you don't need permission for. You know a lot of the, a lot of the resources are still out there. There's still like primary resources that you can rely on that may not be complete, but sometimes that incompleteness is actually the knowledge as well. People need to know mm-hmm. that when you're researching these topics, this is what you're going to find, or this is what is available, or this is what is not available. And that also is knowledge. So I feel like there are many things, and of course, there's, you, can't, you can't have this conversation without discussing the, you know, just archives in general. And I feel like mm-hmm. we need to understand that there are many ways that you can engage with an archive from whether it is that yes you want to you know like the you know academics will say oh whether it is that you want to you know read along the grains or read against the grains or whether it is that you want to just even burn the entire archive whether it is that you want to tear things apart whether it is that you want to ignore it completely and start afresh we need to give ourselves that liberty to really you know to be more um imaginative with what we do with the resources that we have and I mean, just to buttress your point, last year when I was working on my dissertation, I mean, I've told you what it was like working at the National Archives in Inungu, but for the sake of listeners, I'll just say again, it was an awful experience, harrowing experience. And I just thought, if this is all I had to build my research on, I don't think I would have had a dissertation to the standard that my dissertation was because, you know, the staff there was saying that if I pay them a certain amount, I can take, you know, parts of the archive home. I can take documents home. You know, there was writing in pen. People didn't care. Everything was dusty. Things were torn. And I just thought, how can we actively create knowledge when this is, these are, these are the archives we have, especially because when you then go to the UK and you look at their archives on Africa, mm-hmm. better cataloged, better stored, mm-hmm. be- just everything is of such a higher level. And it's like, you know, taking, taking a, not to take away from our history and historical context, but 
this is why it's so difficult because we don't have governments and bodies that are willing and able to give us even just an archive, a bank of information where we can, you know, create knowledge from. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot that also needs to be said about the historical reasons for these imbalances, because Mm. we can't deny, you know, just how colonization ruptured knowledge systems, how it it, it Mm -hmm. canceled entire, how it canceled like entire um, ways of, just even ways of knowledge. For example, you think about like things like orality and oral knowledge. And the fact that those things just don't feature anymore in, you know, in, 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 or not that they don't feature anymore, but at some, at some stage when people were building what would, you know, what would count as African knowledge, they chose to ignore those aspects of it. And because they choose, because they ignored those aspects of it, we lost so much. Or because they, they, they actively even destroyed those aspects of it, we lost so much. So there's a lot in our knowledge sphere that, that is actually completely lost completely because Mm -hmm. they were, you know, they were not classed as knowledge by the people who were responsible for creating, um, our colonial archives or, or, or our historical or, or or the beginnings of our, or, or, or defining what would become, you know, African history or Nigerian history. A lot of people want to contribute to this mission to creating knowledge and writing for not just the Republic, but other similar publications. But for a lot of, a lot of young writers, um, the issues around how to pitch their ideas, how to negotiate pay. As editor, sorry, I don't know why I'm mixing up my words. <laughs> As editor in chief, what advice can you give to young writers trying to get their writing featured in publications like The Republic? How can they pitch their ideas and their writing and position themselves as critical writers? I don't. I mean, I always go back to always, 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 always go back to um, the words Susan Sontag had, which was pay attention to the world. Just pay attention. I feel like, you know, she says writers are people who pay attention to the world. And I think you must pay attention to the world. I mean, it's a longer, she has a much longer, more beautiful quote than that. And that's where that, you know, I extra, I'm extracting that from there. It's like, the full, I feel like the fuller quote to go something like love words, agonize over sentences and pay attention to the world. You know, these are the things that, um, that a writer does. But for me, out of all of that, I feel like the most important part is paying attention to the world and really bearing witness, you know, and being mm-hmm. a reliable witness to what is going on. At the end of the day, right, something that's very important to places like the Republic, for us in particular, speak to, you know, on the Republic's, from the Republic's point of view is we say that we say that we work, we do a lot of work with experts, Right. But how we define experts are people who are able to communicate and people who about issues that they are directly firsthand experiencing. So these are, you know, you don't have to be somebody who has spent a hundred years studying something. You just have to be someone that's affected by it. Right. But that, you know, but, but you understand, you understand why you are affected by it in a certain way. And you're able to kind of approach this in a, in, in an original and really fresh perspective. So pay attention to the world and just, you know, and part of how do you pay attention to the world? You read, you know, you read and you really draw those connections mm-hmm. that you're talking about. You draw those connections and you see how you find, and, and you kind of, and you try, you try to imagine and insert yourself into those connections. And I think that when you do that, 
the, your work will always have potential. You don't have to, I feel like people for at the moment, what we find is a lot of people who are precious about writing. They want to get how to write. They want to write beautifully without saying anything. You want to be like <laughs> James Baldwin in yeah. your first essay you've ever written. It's not going to happen. Like, <laughs> the thing is, what I even find is that you, they don't just want to be doing James Baldwin. They want to be Baldwin without the substance. You want to be James Baldwin mm. without, without the word. addressing any of the, like without issues, without addressing issues, without creating any knowledge, without providing the perspective that people really need. But you can't do that. So it's not just about writing beautiful sentences and, and, and coming up with clever ways of crafting stuff that people already know. It's about pushing the boundaries. It's about creating some sort of impact with your writing. And I think that when you do that, I mean, there's no... Um, and when I say impact, I don't mean, oh, you, you're, you're writing these to change the world. But it just creates a shift of perspective. And sometimes that shift of perspective mm. is just your own perspective, which should be fresh, original, and which should actually take the conversation forward. And when you do that, I feel like there's no way, you know, there's, I don't see a possibility in which you will not be writing, um, your writing won't be respected and valued. I feel like, you know, for me, it's pay less attention, be less precious about your writing, and be more concerned about what it is that you're writing about. I have one final question, and that is, how do you hope to see Nigeria's media landscape change in the coming years? That's a good question. I think in the, you know, if I, when I look at the media landscape and I feel like, and I consider what I think needs to be done um, to just like create that widespread knowledge, which is something that we're interested in at the Republic, the major change I'd like to see is us just expanding, you know, our imagination of who the audience is. I feel like there's a vast audience in the country. I mean, it's about, you know, around 200 million people. But when you look at what is formally considered to be a media audience, that number gets very, very small. And I feel mm -hmm. like... When I, look at, when I look into the future, what I want to see is a media landscape that's confident and that has the infrastructure to deliver even the most important news, you know, last mile to the most remote person in the most remote mm. village in a format that that person appreciates and values. So not in a format that's like dumbed down or, 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 or scaled down to kind of like, you know, a, appeal to to their senses, but in it, you know, to, to, you know, um, presumed senses, but to an actual, like, but a future in which you see media taking the people that they serve more seriously. Mm. And so that involves, you know, rethinking the kinds of formats that we use, the kind of mediums that we use to share that media, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, really thinking about the content itself and how we get it to that person who is listening to it or who is watching it or who is reading it in a way that, that takes them seriously, in a way that kind of also gives them that opportunity to learn as opposed to dumbing down a particular issue because we think, oh, people of a certain X, Y, Z may not have, you know, the same level of education or the same ability to understand those things. I think there's a lot of mm -hmm. um, underestimation that happens and there's a reluctance to really key into that human level of curiosity and to trust that people are 
you know, really interested in learning as much as they are interested in getting information. So it's really looking at a media landscape that has the means, because I understand that obviously these are very, very idealistic goals. So there must be some sort of realistic constraints, realistic, and by realistic constraints, I mean like in terms of finances, in terms of the technology available, it just needs to be there as well. So it's not just, it's kind of like many things that kind of just need to align and be available at the same time for this really important vision to happen. So it's infrastructure, it's content. And of course, it's also the audience being there and being receptive to whatever it is that the media is bringing out. So, you know, in the future, when I look into the future, what I see is a media landscape that has really serious content, but also content that takes its audience seriously. Wonderful. I mean... You've had wonderful answers this entire time (laughs) and a wonderful way to end this section. So in the next section, it's the rapid fire questions where I ask you, you know, X or Y and you choose. And it's a great way for listeners to just get a better sense of who you are and your personality. So are you ready? Yes, let's go. Right. Off the bat, Achebe or Shoinka? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's tough. Uh, Let's see. The thing is, I don't actually read them. I mean, I, I, I read, it's, it's, it's tough because I don't read them separately. Okay, at this moment, you want to pick up a book to read. Mm-hmm. It has to be by either Achebe or Shoenka. What's it going to be? Just at um, this moment. Mm, let's see. At this moment, if I were to pick a book, uh, uh, let's see. This is very difficult. It's a very difficult decision. <laughs> I'm trying to think of which book because you I have, must choose today. Yeah, I, mean, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. I have both of them on my. I have a, a collection of books that I travel everywhere with, and both of them are on it. So I'm trying to now decide. Okay, between, uh, between, hmm, between a collection of showing cup plays that I have, and no longer at ease. That's a tough one. Funny enough, I'd pick neither. I'd pick Things Fall Apart. Yeah. All right. Short story or poem? I'd pick a poem. Long form or short and concise? Long form. (laughs) No, same here. Okay. Next rapid fire question. Present time or pre-colonial in terms of like when novels are set? Oh, present time. I think present time. Diaspora stories or, you know, stories about home hmm. set, I guess, in home, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, I have a preference. I feel, I, I feel like I have a preference for, hmm, I have a preference, I'd say, for um, stories set on the continent. Okay. Things Fall Apart or A Man of the People? Oh, uh, Things Fall Apart. In print or online? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, it depends. If it's an article online, if it's a book in print. Hardback or paperback? Paperback. Akara or Moi Moi? Moi Moi, yes. Same. Amala or Eba? Uh, come through with the Amala. I'll give you that. That's good. <laughs> I'll go with that. Instagram or Twitter? Hmm. It depends. Um, on a personal level, Twitter. On a... On an organizational level, Instagram. Ankara or Adire? Adire. Adire goes. <laughs> it depends, though. It, 
particular style of Adirail. It's not all Adirail. Um, it's yeah, yeah. Adirail Labere, I think that's what they call it. That's the kind that I wear. Hat or filler? Mm, filler. I know you like your head coverings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is a filler? Yeah. Kindle, Kindle or iBooks? Oof, I prefer iBooks, funny enough. Afrobeats or literature? Like, you know, what do you think is more yeah. representative of, you know, urban Lagos living? You know, like, what do you think speaks more to living in Lagos, Afrobeats Afro or literature? We have a lot to learn from Afrobeats. Okay, so in this last section, we're going to talk about the three texts that have shaped the way you think. Mm -hmm. And I say text because it can be a book, an article, a poem, anything. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, mine are three books, actually. Um, The first book is not like, well, well, three books, but one is more of an essay than a book, but it's in a book. So the first one Mm -hmm. is um, Franz Fanon's uh, Wretched of the Earth. I think everyone should read Mm -hmm. that. Everyone should read that before leaving university preferably. Mm. I had the opportunity to do that and it really changed um, my mindset. Um, Particularly, you know, he has a quote, um, you know, each generation must out of relative obscurity, find its mission, fulfill it or betray it. And that for me, I have that, you know, it's my screensaver. It's everywhere. (laughs) That's why I have the quote (laughs) memorized. I just always remember to myself, each generation, but like, it's, it's such a powerful book just in terms of understanding race and understanding, um, you know, understanding yourself better and kind of, you know, what it means to live in this black body and navigate the world. Fanon had his own, had his own issues, you know, that, that, but that aside, I think, you know, Wretched of the Earth is such a powerful book, particularly if you also have the opportunity to read the introduction, um, by Jean-Paul, uh, such, um, Mm. and that will give you, that's also a very, I mean, it's, a, it's also a very powerful way of introducing, um, introducing the book. The next book I have is um, No Longer at Ease. I feel like everyone should read No Longer at Ease, um, particularly if you are in your 20s, um, just because it's a very, you know, it's, it's a classic in the, you know, in the very Italo Calvino sense of it hasn't finished, you know, what it has to say. It's still very relevant till today. The final text, which I said was, is, it's, it's not a book. It's this, it's the Sarah Lawrence um, commencement address that Toni Morrison gave, um, I think in, 19, mm. in the 1970s, where, you know, she talks, I mean, it's just full of, you know, it's, it's just full of wisdom. I feel, I feel like I'm not, some, I, I'm not somebody who likes, I, I, I dislike self-help books and I dislike them for one reason because they're not realistic. I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of the time when you have self-help books, the way that they are marketed, the way that they are written, it's just, it's from a language of unapproachability. It's, you know, I, I rarely get inspired when I read self-help books, but I find mm-hmm. a lot of self-help in um, a lot of like positive self-motivation and just self-inspiration and, and, and all of that in Toni Morrison's non-fictional writing. And that's Sarah Lawrence's address. It was just, she had this way of, and I mean, this is someone that, you know, was already an American icon, but could, but could speak to you in a way that kind of made you feel like you, you could, you know, I feel like inspiration for me, inspiration works. If I, if, if it's someone that I can relate to, 
Like she was relatable. Because for example, I feel like when somebody is so powerful and they give you inspirational words, there's a bit of distance. So I don't get, I, I never really get inspired because I'm like, well, how can I really get inspired by this person when you're so high up there? You don't know what life is like for me. But she had this way of knowing what life is like for ev- like for, or appearing to know what life, life was like for everyone. And just this ability to kind of meet you where you were and give you advice based on that. And I love that. You know, I, th- I think it's powerful. And so the Sarah Lawrence mm. um, commencement address really just, you know, she's giving a commencement. She's telling people who are about to graduate um, just some life wisdom. And it's just full of incredible, incredible quotes. You know, it's 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 it's, it's it tells you things like, oh, you know, there's a particular section towards the end where it tells you where she's where she says things about how each one of us, you know, will have some sort of will make decisions that will have implications on the lives of others and just how to like, you know, understand that responsibility that we all have as people who, who most likely be leaders, um, people who may lead teams, people who may lead on projects and that we need to understand that sometimes we're going to make difficult decisions that will affect people's lives and that we need to understand that in many of those cases, we are not heartless. You know, we we're not wicked people. We're doing what we must do. But then she also kind of, at some point, she also reminds us that, look, you know, as you step into positions of power, you know, don't forget, you know, dream before you think, you know, just before Mm. you like make those decisions, dream of something, dream of something that is like, you know, dream of something that's, that's more dream of like a, 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 a better world and kind of just position yourself towards imagining something better before you then make that decision. And I just think the entire, I think the entire piece is powerful. And I've, I've, it's something that I've, I've also recommended to a lot of people, especially in these like pandemic times, because, you know, companies Mm -hmm. have to make tough decisions. If you lead a company, if you lead a team, you will have to make some very, very difficult decisions. And it's important that you know, you know, that in, in making those decisions, people's lives will be affected but that at the same time, there are decisions that you will make and they're not going to be out of heartlessness. They're going to be out of the fact that those were decisions that you just had to make and you need to be comfortable and you need to accept that responsibility and that duty. And I just think it's just a powerful um, message, especially to have in these times. Perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Wale. <laughs> Thank you so much. Go to therepublic.com.ng to find out more about The Republic and to subscribe. You can find Wale on Instagram and Twitter at Wale Lawal. That's W-A-L-L-E-L-A-W-A-L. You can find me on Instagram at Mayawa underscore reads, where I'll be reading and reviewing books. Thank you for listening. Thank you.